Good morrow, friends. This is Jordan, and you're listening to Not Strictly History. Hello, all of you. It is so great to be here with you today. Thank you so much for being here with me. Thank you. And also, thank you so much for all of the love and all of the support that the Beowulf episode has gotten, the old English episode, last week's episode, you know, whatever you want to call it. Just thank you. As you know, um, that particular episode was very special to me and a little bit vulnerable to share, honestly. So the positivity has been very, very wonderful, very great. So thank you. Times a million. Please keep all the positivity going. Please go listen to it if you haven't yet. It's It was so much fun to make and it was a great episode. So today, my friends, today, today is a day of firsts because today on Not Strictly History, we are doing something that we have never done before. That's right. We're getting spooky. It's true. Woohoo! That's right. We're getting spooky today because it is now officially fall, according to the presence of the autumn equinox this last weekend. And as such, spooky season has officially begun in this world. And I am very, very much here for it. Duncan is playing in the background. He's apparently excited for spooky season. Anyway, so the episode, well, okay, a little bit of house housekeeping to um, attend to here. Originally, the episode that was going to be airing today was much, much, much different than the episode that we currently find ourselves in. And um, that episode will be aired either next week or the week after. Here's what happened. It's a topic I've always wanted to learn about. And as I started learning more about it, it got intense really fast. And um, the research was just insane. And there was so much there. And I have been having so much fun this season, just like deep diving into things and really giving you guys super fleshed out episodes whenever I can. And I would just rather give you a full, well-researched episode than give you something that isn't ready yet, um, which would have happened had I tried to get that episode out to you this week. And especially for this particular subject, I really want to do a good job and I really want to do it justice. So um, there's your little teaser. We will get to that later as whenever you know, whenever that episode airs is when we'll get to it. But just so you know, that's coming. So because of this, I was searching for something to speak with you about today. And um, the chilly autumn air decided for me. It whispered in my ear, Jordan, it's time to get spooky. To which I said, okay, done. And thus began my search for the appropriate story to tell all of you. A story with a blend of history and spookiness that would be just right. And my friends, I think I found it. If I haven't, it's far too late. But anyway, this story that I'm about to tell you has it all. A grand hotel, magical healing waters, elaborate ballrooms, mysterious fires, a walk-in refrigerated morgue, and so much more. Because today, everybody, we are talking about the Crescent Hotel in Eureka Springs, Arkansas otherwise known as America's Most Haunted Hotel. As I said before, we've got some history and lots of spookiness to cover. So um, put on your spooky pants because it's time to get into it. Our story today takes us deep into the Ozark Mountains of Arkansas, not far from the Missouri border where there lies a town with a very intriguing past 
that we're going to dive into a little bit. This town is known as Eureka Springs, and as luck would have it, nearby is a natural spring that has long been considered to have healing properties. In fact, Native American legends tell of a great healing spring in this area and have for a very long time. People of various indigenous cultures have long visited the springs in this area for this sacred purpose of healing. This area um, is actually the ancestral lands of the historic Osage Nation, and bands of Delaware and Shawnee peoples have also lived in this area. So this history of coming to this area and using this natural spring as a healing place is very long, long history, very established, okay? However, the belief that natural springs possess some kind of healing power is also common among other many other people. And um, the European Americans and their descendants in America also believed this. They often, um, there's a lot of history behind this. We could, again, oh my gosh, every time, we could do a whole episode on the belief that natural springs have magical healing powers, okay? But that was a thing that European Americans believed also. So around the time of, well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's talk about a doctor. A doctor by the name of Alva Jackson is credited in American history with locating the major spring, which just checks out and I'm not here for, but that's a story for another time probably. So in 1856, he has quote unquote discovered this spring and he claimed that the waters of this spring known as Basin Spring, had cured his eye ailments, okay? He then proceeded to establish a hospital in a local cave during the Civil War and used the waters from Basin Spring to treat his patients. Now listen to me. I'm going to repeat this. He then proceeded to establish a hospital in a local cave during the Civil War and used the waters from Basin Spring to treat his patients. Now, the reason that I had to repeat that is because he established a hospital in a local cave. And I have so many questions. It really checks out Civil War-wise, because if you didn't know, more men in the Civil War died from infection and... Um, you know, just not having great doctors. So like that all checks out. But I just, I have, I have so many questions. And, and what does it mean to use the water to treat his patients? Like he's, if you're just having them drink it, that's not really a treatment, right? I don't know. Anyway, after the Civil War, Dr. Jackson began marketing the spring waters as, quote, Dr. Jackson's eye water. And again, I have questions. First of all, how the heck can you market a, like, it's 1868 or whatever. Like, you don't just, like, say, hey, this is my spring that I'm going to market. I don't know. Maybe I should have looked into this guy because turns out I have questions. Anyway, let's move on. In 1879, a man by the name of Judge J.B. Saunders, who was a friend of our friend Dr. Jackson, claimed that his crippling disease was also cured by the spring waters of Basin Spring. And he started to promote Eureka Springs, this area, to friends and family members all over the state of Arkansas. And before long, a boom town was created. If America can do one thing, friends, America can create a boom town. It's very true. Maybe we'll do an episode on that someday. Within a period of little more than one year, this 
became a huge city. It was at, I'm going to stop stuttering. I'm, I'm really getting ahead of myself in this episode. There's just a lot to cover and I'm excited. Originally, this place was really just a rural spa village that people sometimes came to if you knew about the healing water, right? But within a year, it had turned into a major city and tourist destination. Isn't that crazy? Within one year. It's wild. So a year later, on February 14th, 1880, Eureka Springs was incorporated as a city. And thousands and thousands of visitors were coming to the springs based on Judge Saunders's promotion. And they were just covering the area with tents and shanties. And like, like people were just going for it. Okay. The next year, in 1881, Eureka Springs had grown so much that it had become Arkansas's fourth largest city, wild. And then in 1889, it had become the second largest city behind Little Rock. There's just so much going on. But let's jump back a teeny bit to the year 1872, when a former Arkansas governor by the name of Powell Clayton moved to Eureka Springs and began to heavily promote the town and its commercial interests. Now listen. Clayton had been a governor of Arkansas, like we just said. His term was from 1868 to 1870 during the Reconstruction Era. We're going to have to do an episode about that someday because that's there's a lot going on there. Anyway, so he moves to Eureka Springs and he starts marketing it as a retirement community for the wealthy. And this very quickly resulted in Eureka Springs becoming known for gracious living and an overall wealthy lifestyle. So come with me on this. We're in the late 1800s, wealthy lifestyle. Like, I think you can kind of get the gist of what vibe we're going for here, right? Around the turn of the century, things are happening. Anyway, I'm just, I'm trying to like project the vibe onto you and I hope you're getting it because I don't know if you're not, I'm sorry. In 1882, Clayton formed the Eureka Springs Improvement Company in order to further take advantage of all of this prosperity that was happening in Eureka Springs. Clayton and this company then decided to orchestrate the arrival of the Frisco Railroad in town. And if you guys know anything about rural America back in the day, like when the railroad came to town, that was huge. Like that was groundbreaking stuff, okay? Once the railroad comes into town, you've made it. And Eureka Springs has now made it even more because it's now even more accessible as a destination and and vacation resort. So within two years, thousands and thousands more homes and businesses begin springing up. And um, like this town is just wildin'. So in the midst, midst of all this prosperity and all of these people looking to take advantage of the prosperity, this is where we come to our friend, the whole reason that we're here today. This brings us to the legendary Crescent Hotel. So the Eureka Springs Improvement Company looked at all of this growth and all of this tourism and decided that what the town really needed was a very grand, luxurious resort hotel to support all the visitors that the town was seeing all the time. And along with several other investors, the Frisco Railroad joined in on the plan. And thus, all of these people coming together, they set their sights on creating just this haven of opulence and elegance. And the construction of the Crescent Hotel commenced in 1884, marking the beginning of this grand architectural endeavor. And the hotel 
from day one was envis was envisioned to be this luxurious retreat that would showcase the region's natural beauty because after all that's why people are coming right to take advantage of the natural springs going on so construction begins and numerous stonemasons were actually brought in from ireland to begin the construction in again in 1884 due to the density of the magnesium limestone that was used to build the hotel special wagons had to be constructed to move these humongous pieces of stone from the quarry site which was on the white river so like it's just like imagine this huge endeavor right because we're just we're just getting limestone from far out. like there's just so much going on and this is why they brought in all these extra stonemasons so this hotel my friends it's like it is so grand okay it's designed in kind of an array of, of an array of architectural styles it's not just one but it has 18 inch walls it has many different towers overhanging balconies and a massive stone fireplace in the lobby like it's a big deal okay and um construction went on for two years which i think it's crazy that they got this done in two years but anyway so more and more workers kept being hired because they're installing electrical lights modern plumbing steam heating an elevator extensive landscaping luxurious decorations and amenities like this place was the height of luxury and at the forefront of technology okay ultimately this hotel cost $294,000 to build, which was wildly extravagant for the time. Now, don't you worry, because I have inflationed that for you. 9.2 million today, which to be honest, seems really cheap for the kind of building that they built, but we're not here to talk about that. So after two years of this meticulous craftsmanship, the Crescent Hotel was finished in 1886. And on May 20th, the Crescent Hotel opened amid much fanfare. Like, this was a huge deal, okay? The local Eureka Springs Times Echo called it America's most luxurious resort hotel. And notable people from all over the country attended the grand opening of this amazing hotel, which included this huge gala ball, there was a full orchestra, and a banquet dinner for 400 people, okay? Again, a huge deal because the Crescent Hotel had a lot to offer. There were large airy rooms with beautiful furnishings, a dining room that seated 500 people, and the outside amenities also included a swimming pool, tennis courts, landscaping, flower gardens, boardwalks, gazebos, like you name anything luxurious, the Crescent Hotel had it, okay? So as you can probably imagine, Pretty much immediately, the well-to-do of America began to flock to this luxurious resort hotel. And they would, it's wild, just come with me on this. Close your eyes and listen to this scene I'm about to paint for you. They would ride the train, the Frisco Railroad, right? They're riding the train into Eureka Springs and they would stop at the Frisco Depot. And their footmen in beautiful uniforms would meet them and take their luggage and then transport them to the Crescent Hotel. It's the stuff of dreams, okay? And once they were there, there's a million things for the guests to enjoy, right? They have all those things we've listed before and they also have the healing waters of the spa, right? Um, there was also a stable of 100 horses, 
there were tea dances every afternoon and elaborate parties every single night with a full in-house orchestra. So there is a lot going on here, okay? The lavish accommodations, the breathtaking views, and the top-notch amenities drew guests from everywhere. People just seeking this escape, right? And the hotel very quickly gained a reputation for luxury and elegance. And I, I mean, it's obvious why, right? But like, as I've been researching this episode, as I keep imagining what it must have been like in its heyday, I'm thinking of that movie somewhere in time. I don't know if any of you have seen that movie. It's techn- It's set in like the 1910s, I think. So we're a little bit later than this hotel we're talking about. But I just keep thinking about that because I'm pretty sure they're at this luxury hotel the whole time. Anyway, I actually hate that movie. <laughs> um, it's not, I don't like that movie at all. I think it ends horribly, but that's, we are not here to talk about somewhere in time, maybe another day. Anyway, that's, if you've seen that movie, that is the kind of vibe that I imagine for the Crescent Hotel, you know, these elegant people coming to this resort. They have all of these beautiful things. It's the turn of the century. Things are changing. Like there's just a vibe of newness and improvement and progress. And I think that it was probably really intoxicating. So for the next 15 years, the Crescent Hotel was owned and operated by the Eureka Springs Improvement Company and was always this exclusive hotspot in the country for the elite. However, the prosperity was not to last, unfortunately. After the turn of the century, people started realizing that the healing waters of Basin Spring didn't actually heal anything. There were no curative magical powers happening. Um, and since that's what the hotel and the city were known for, it kind of took a hit, you know? I think that's fair to say. Tourism really pretty much stopped. Little by little, people stopped coming to the resort, which is really interesting because the resort had so much to offer, right? So I feel like in some ways, I mean, I'm not an expert in this, okay? Like, don't take my word for it. But there's so much going on with the resort and the town Um, at this point, maybe like, wasn't the basin, the basin spring just kind of secondary? I don't know. It's interesting to me that, um, people just stopped coming to this amazing place because they learned that the water wasn't magical. I mean, it's, it's wild, but anyway, that's probably a topic for another day. So in 1902, the Crescent Hotel was leased to the Frisco Railroad for five years. From 1908 to 1924, this is going to knock your socks off, okay? The building was used as the Crescent College and Conservatory for Young Women, and it also continued as a summer resort. And for a long time, the college flourished. It offered a very comprehensive curriculum, and it fostered a vibrant academic community, which is beautiful. If it can't be this luxury hotel, I'm so here for it being an acclaimed college. I love it. The college gained a reputation for its commitment to excellence. It attracted students from all over the country. It provided the young women that attended there with exceptional educational opportunities, and it empowered them to continue to pursue knowledge and their personal growth 
and it was like good stuff, my friends, okay? However, after operating for 16 years, the revenues from tuition and summer guests were still not high enough to maintain the costs of running this building, and the women's college was closed. Although, it is still often remembered today as this era of female education and empowerment, which I love. I love it that that part of it is still very much alive and well. So after the women's college closed, the Crescent Hotel sat abandoned for another six years, which is very, very tragic. During this time, it was purchased and owned by a U.S. congressman and a former mayor by the name of Claude Fuller, as well as the current mayor at the time, Albert G. Ingalls. And although this was the case, it still sat abandoned for six years. They didn't do anything with it. It briefly reopened as a junior college from 1930 to 1934. But again, it was not to be. And the junior college sadly passed on. And this, my friends, brings us to the year 1937. The title of this section in my notes is The Spooky Begins because everybody, this is when the spooky begins. The year 1937, we meet a man named Norman Baker, and we also meet the beginning of the Crescent Hotel's period of darkness. So it was in this year, 1937, that a truly, truly horrible man by the name of Norman Baker purchased the Crescent Hotel. And there is so much to say about his time at the Crescent, but first we just need to talk a little bit about who this man is because it is a doozy of a story, my friends. Truly, truly. I We have to talk about this man because it's, wow. Okay, so who was Norman Baker? Well, he was an early American radio broadcaster, entrepreneur, and inventor. He was born into a wealthy family in a small town in Iowa and was the youngest of 10 children. His father was an inventor who had allegedly patented 126 inventions, which is wild. And his mother had been a writer before getting married. So they had a good amount of money. Now, you could, when, when learning about this man, Norman Baker, you could ask the question, what did Norman Baker do? But the better question is this. What didn't Norman Baker do? Because the answer to this is that Norman Baker did not do one good or wholesome thing ever in his entire life. And I have the receipts, okay? He was always jumping on the next big thing and finding a way to make a scam out of it, essentially. But let's talk a little bit more about Norman, shall we? Throughout his life, he was involved in politics, radio, newspapers, and even the carnival. He loved to, den to denounce all organized forms of anything, okay? Which is wildly ironic and insane. Maybe ironic's not the right term, but like he was always forming organizations, but then he would turn around and say, all organizations are corrupt. So for example, he called doctors educated fools and quote, cutters, and said that the abbreviation MD actually stood for quote, more dough. He started a radio station pretty early in his life, and it was called KTNT. It was called this because of the explosive nature of what it talked about, right? And it was also called, you know, it kind of had a nickname, so KTNT. It was also called Know the Naked Truth. 
there is so much going on here. I have so many visions of who, what this was like. And wow, there's just a lot going on. Eventually, though, this radio station lost its license because all it ever did was slander other people and spread very false information. But it didn't lose its license until it had been popular for many, many years. So that's unfortunate. Anyway, Norman Baker was also involved in pretty much constant litigation. As you can probably imagine, a very loud, opinionated, and strange man like him made enemies really easily and very quickly. But he was a master at filing and winning lawsuits against anybody that he perceived as threatening to him, which was everybody. He was always under the impression that there was a massive conspiracy against him. And so he was always suing somebody over something. By 1930, Norman Baker was running the Baker Institute in his hometown in Iowa. It was a medical clinic that he advertised on the air all the time on his radio station. And he said that he had the cure for cancer. But of course, this quote unquote cure was incredibly expensive. And so was any other treatment that you might have gone there to receive. And guess what, everybody? These treatments actually consisted of injections of a mix of common substances, including corn silk, watermelon seeds, clover, water, and carbolic acid. As you can probably imagine, I've said that a lot in this episode, but as you can probably imagine, he didn't cure a single person. Wild. He also took to doing what were basically live shows, I'm not kidding, where he would cure people out in the open on stage. And listen, these events were so wild that they have been compared to Woodstock. Okay, see season two, episode one. You know how wild that was. These events have been compared to Woodstock. Okay, it they drew tens of thousands of people who were encouraged to buy all of his various products while they were there, and they would witness him curing cancer patients on stage out in the open. And it was just this wild, slightly evangelical experience, probably, which is just, it's just insane. So, but also at this time, the Journal of the American Medical Association is, they've got his number, okay? The American Medical Association has got his number. And so in the Journal of the American Medical Association, they decide to call Norman Baker out as a quack. Okay, not only because of all the quackery that he's clearly quacking, but remember, everybody, this man is not a doctor. He has no medical expertise whatsoever. He is running this medical clinic, professing to cure people, treating them medicinally. He is not a doctor in any way, shape, or form. He has no medical knowledge. So the American Medical Association wasn't super cool with that, which is fair. So anyway, an injunction is finally brought against Norman Baker and his practice because um, he's not a doctor. And this injunction was upheld by the Iowa Supreme Court in 1931. Now this is where the story gets even crazier, if that's a thing. So I, f- I found a few sources on him. It's a little hard to find information, but one of the sources that I found says that next, okay, the next thing it talks about. So the injunction is upheld in 1931. 
And then the next thing you read is, he came back from exile in Mexico in 1937. And I have literally no information about this whatsoever, okay? I know that he served one day in jail in 1937 and paid a $50 fine for contempt of court, but this whole exile in Mexico thing, I'm floored, and I have no answers for you. I have literally no idea, because if all you're doing is just connecting the dots of what we have, it totally sounds like the state of Iowa just looked at him and said, yes, you're a quack, you're not a doctor, and you've swindled thousands of real patients out of their money, so now we're going to exile you to Mexico, because as a state, that's a thing we can totally do. I don't know. I legitimately have no idea, guys, but allegedly... He was in exile in Mexico for six years. Wild stuff. And now, of course, we're back to where we started in the year 1937. And this is when Norman Baker left Iowa and traveled to Eureka Springs, Arkansas. This town that had once been booming and flourishing. And he thought to himself, yes, this will do. And as we said earlier, he bought our old friend, the Crescent Hotel, and proceeded to reopen it as a cancer hospital and health resort. He did this by, once again, advertising miracle cures for cancer that required neither surgery nor painful expensive tests and treatments. He promoted to his patients that they would leave the, quote, resort cancer-free. Listen, he, he was very adamant about how this was a health resort. I mean, you would just come and have a good time and get cured, basically. And, okay, Okay, listen, forget the fact that he'd been run out of Iowa for doing this exact same thing and was also possibly exiled for it, whatever. We're just going to head over to Arkansas and do it because it's the 1930s. So nobody there knows a dang thing about him. And he's just going to do it all over again. It's insane. Okay, furthermore, again, the American Medical Association had denounced this guy, and they had already condemned the many different elixirs that he had claimed to invent that allegedly cured a variety of ailments, including cancer. But none of this matters because nobody in Arkansas knew who this guy was or what he had done. So they just assumed he was an actual doctor coming to open a hospital that would legitimately treat patients and perhaps even cure them, which is just horrible. My friends, this dude... Norman Baker, in a nutshell, he's just a freaking insane con artist, okay, who had been scamming unsuspecting cancer patients for years and years and years. This is despicable on so many levels, okay? I could go on a rant about how horrible scammers are in general, but the anger I feel towards this man is on another level because to scam people with horrible, debilitating diseases, like they're coming to you because they are dying. And I just, I cannot wrap my head around how horrible this man was. I really can't. Later investigations into Norman Baker revealed that he had defrauded cancer patients out of approximately $4 million over the course of his whole career as a con man. Oh, and don't worry, ingested for inflation, that is $85 million. So, um, screw you, sir. Anyway, we're going to move on. Norman Baker buys the Crescent Hotel and he transforms it into the Baker Cancer Clinic, portraying himself, of course, as a visionary and wonderful healer. He also called this new cancer clinic 
the quote castle in the air and began promoting it like crazy on the radio claiming of course that he could heal cancer without resorting to any kind of surgical procedure or dangerous treatment and let me tell you people were flooding in okay his whole thing was really working for him all right it had worked before it was still working and in case you needed just a little bit more to go off of with this guy when he bought the crescent hotel he made a bunch of modifications to it in order to change it into the hospital quote unquote that he envisioned complete with an escape route from his office featuring a secret staircase now let me give you some advice everybody if at any point in your career you have to say to yourself i think my office needs an escape route you're either james freaking bond or you're corrupt and my money's on corrupt because i know you're not james bond so get your life in order anyway while operating his quote-unquote hospital baker was actually being investigated by the federal authorities and two years later in 1939 he was finally arrested for mail fraud of all things and i'm wondering if it was one of those things where it's like we're just trying to arrest him for anything we can basically kind of like al capone see season one episode one one of the u.s postal inspectors estimated that baker had made as much as five hundred thousand dollars per year selling his miracle elixirs through the mail while living in eureka springs I, there is so much going on here. I don't even know what to say. He was convicted and served a four-year sentence in Leavenworth. I mean, he was in Leavenworth, but for only four years. I don't know. There, I, okay. So here's the thing, everybody. No one expressly, that's not the right word. I don't know. Nobody technically died from Baker's quote-unquote cure. But also, I mean, his treatments didn't help anybody. So they likely hastened the death of those suffering from cancer because they were just bebopping around with him and not getting the actual treatment that they needed. So that's interesting. In 1944, Baker was released from Leavenworth and moved to Florida, where he lived comfortably until he died in 1958. To which I say, what and why? Why are there so many people out there who get to do this when they have committed atrocities? They just go serve some kind of ridiculous joke of a sentence and then go live out their life comfortably in Florida? What the heck is that? It's really annoying, okay? But anyway, so even though we don't have like a bunch of detailed documented evidence, if any, honestly, of what actually went down in the hospital during Norman Baker's reign of terror. I think it's pretty safe to say that none of it was good, and we actually have some clues to back that up. Another one of the modifications that Norman Baker had made to the Crescent Hotel was a morgue with an autopsy table and a walk-in cadaver refrigerator. All very normal things, of course, for an alleged oncologist. Okay, I had to like, calm down and make myself see this rationally. Granted, I can see the need for a morgue in a place like this, but I just don't think there's any reason for him to have an autopsy table or to need an entire walk-in cadaver freezer. I just don't think that's necessary. So here's another piece of advice, okay? 
If you ever find out that the doctor who is treating you for cancer also has a morgue with an autopsy table and a cadaver fridge, that's not a cancer doctor, my friend. Run. Furthermore, in 2019, so fairly recently, an archaeological dig at the site uncovered hundreds of bottles of Baker's secret formula. And get this, jars containing surgical, quote, medical specimens that were removed from his patients. So, um, yeah, I think we can very safely assume that nothing good happened during this whole experience. So the next phase in the Crescent Hotel's life is thankfully free of Norman Baker. And, um, but it also, it's not exactly positive, okay? For the next, like, 50 years, basically, the hotel goes through many, many different owners and lots and lots of renovation projects. Every single time it changes owners, the they're trying to restore it to its former glory, which is beautiful because something like this definitely shouldn't be lost. Um, but again, it just keeps happening from owner to owner. So one of the key strategies that owners you know, they wanted to establish like travel vacation packages um, in collaboration with the railroad, things like that. I mean, that was happening for, for quite a while until 1967, my friends, when a very horrible fire mysteriously started and ravaged the penthouse level and a significant portion of the fourth floor of the Crescent Hotel. Now, this fire was attributed to faulty wiring which is probably the truth. I mean, it was, there was a lot going on, right? I don't know. I like to think of it as mysterious because it's spooky, but it's probably just faulty wiring. Anyway, this fire was very, very destructive and um, the hotel had to be closed. By 1970, the hotel had transitioned again into the hands of new owners who wanted to, again, restore it to its former glory. Everybody keeps doing that. It's, it's not, you're not special, like, get in line. Anyway, but these, these, okay, this is significant because these owners in the 1970s, they're restoring the property, expanding it, fixing it, blah, blah, blah. And it's during this period that the first reports of supernatural occurrences began to surface, which, of course, added to the hotel's mystique. But again, this is the first time that we're hearing of some paranormal activity, okay? So let's transition into the 80s when yet another reorganization took place and another group of people bought the Crescent Hotel. And in the 80s, okay, this is wild, all right? So a new group of people buys it in, in 1980, gets it all fixed, right? In 1985, the Crystal Ballroom at the Crescent Hotel played host to a sold out concert by Willie Nelson. And also then governor Bill Clinton delivered a keynote speech at an annual chamber banquet. It is so wild to me that in the same place where a guy was defrauding cancer patients and people came at the turn of the century to drink water also hosted Willie Nelson and Bill Clinton. That's a fever dream right there. That's that's what that is. Oh, my goodness. Anyway, so let's move on to the 1990s. 
on February 28, 1997, Marty and Elise Ronick, I hope that's how you say it, became the newest owners of the Crescent Hotel. And at this time, by this time, the Crescent Hotel was also referred to as the Grand Old Lady of the Ozarks, which is very beautiful. But as you can imagine, my gosh, I've got to stop saying that. The Grand Old Lady of the Ozarks, very beautiful. However, by this time, the Crescent Hotel was very, very dilapidated. It was having a hard time. Okay, so these new owners had a burning passion for preservation, which is great because they said, hey, we need to save this historic structure from complete ruin, which I love. And um, so they decided to do that. In May of 2000, during this grand garden party held at the hotel's Fountain Garden, they publicly announced their ambitious 10-year plan to restore the Crescent to its former glory. Here's what I'm thinking, okay, because we've heard this like a million times in the last four minutes. Everybody's trying to restore it to its former glory. Here's my take on this, okay? It feels like everybody is trying to restore it to its former glory, and maybe they're getting, like, maybe they're getting that done to a certain point, but they're not really doing it. You know what I mean? So I think that by the time the Ronicks bought the Crescent Hotel, it was just, it had been through a lot. A lot of people trying to fix it and not really getting there. And I think that it was either you do everything you can to save it or we tear it down, essentially. So, um, which is, so it's a very ambitious project. But actually, they completed this 10-year plan in five years, which is insane. The restoration efforts included many different developments, such as the design and reconstruction of the fifth floor that had been destroyed in the fire in the 1960s. They recreated the skyline of the original structure, and um, it's, it's insane. Like, it, that's so beautiful. And Victorian color schemes with hand stenciling were applied to all of the walls, um, also in the hotel's lobby. So there's lots of enhancements that were made, historically themed furnishings, bathroom renovations, a lot of clever redesigns to make these 19th century rooms more appealing to modern day guests. I love it that, um, just on a nerdy like historical preservation note, I really love it that this hotel was finally like truly saved and truly restored. And um, I don't think we have to worry about losing it anytime soon. So that's exciting. But let's, um, let's move on. Because this, everybody, was a very, very brief overview of the rather insane past of the Crescent Hotel. This building, uh, uh, obviously has had so many ups and downs. It has gone through a lot of phases. Luxury resort, college, corrupt hospital, sat vacant. I mean, there's a lot going on here for sure. So obviously it doesn't come to a shock to any of us that this building, the ever dynamic Crescent Hotel, is mega haunted. As we mentioned at the top of the episode, it is known as America's most haunted hotel. And now that you have some history on the place, some context, some background, um, it probably makes a little bit more sense as to why this is the case. And we're going to get into it because that's really why we're here. We are here to talk about the hauntings. We're here to get spooky. And not surprisingly, staff and guests alike all tell stories of several different ghosts that apparently still inhabit this old building.
So the very first ghost we must make our acquaintance with is the most often cited apparition in the Crescent Hotel. And he is a red-haired Irish stonemason who the staff has named Michael. Allegedly, Michael was one of the original stonemasons who worked on the hotel's building in 1885. However, while he was working on the roof, he lost his balance and fell to the second floor area and he was killed, unfortunately. The area where he landed now houses room 218 of the hotel and it is said to be the most haunted guest room. Michael is apparently a very mischievous, mischievous spirit who likes to play tricks with the lights, the doors, and the television. And he is also often heard pounding loudly on the walls. Now, this is all well and good. This is like, this is cute fun, right? But others have witnessed hands coming out of the bathroom mirror and heard cries of what sounded like a man falling from the ceiling. Yet other guests have been shaken during the night and on one occasion, a patron ran screaming from the room, professing to have seen blood splattered all over the walls. So, I don't like that. I don't like that at all. Um, let's move on. So, I wasn't surprised to have a stonemason ghost. It makes sense that a builder would be here. But what makes even more sense is the ne next ghost that we run into. A nurse, dressed all in white, who is often seen pushing a gurney on the third floor. Because, that is right, my friends, a nurse, this is a nurse, from the days of the one and only Norman Baker. She is only ever spotted after 11 p.m., which was when they used to move the deceased out of the cancer hospital. During the 1930s, this was the area that was used as the morgue and still houses that morgue and the old autopsy table and the walk-in freezer and everything. The laundry area is also located on the third floor. And a hotel maintenance man once claimed to have witnessed all of the washers and dryers turning on by themselves in the middle of the night. Let me just tell you something. If that happened to me, I would yeet myself out of that premises so fast. I, like, I would quit so fast. Like, no. That's a hard no. Like, on a good day, Michael might be fun to hang out with, okay? This nurse is never a good time. I can say that confidently. Like, just no. Walk away. I'm not here for it, okay? Apparently, she vanishes when she reaches the end of the hallway. Other people have not actually seen her, but they have reported the sounds of squeaks and rattles that sound like a gurney rolling down the hallway. That might be even creepier than seeing the actual apparition. I don't know. This takes us to the old recreation room that's in the basement of the hotel. It's at the foot of the first floor stairway. And it is here that the apparition of Dr. Norman Baker himself is seen. He is dressed in a purple shirt and a white linen suit and apparently looks really confused. I don't know why he'd be confused. Maybe he's just not into the fact that he's bound to this place for eternity. I don't really care because I hate him. But also, he appears identical to the photographs of Norman Baker. So everybody's like, yeah, that's him. Also interesting, for a time, the antique switchboard continued to be used in the hotel. But then it started to receive phone calls from the basement all the time, which was always empty. And um, so they stopped using it. 
it was here in this basement that Norman Baker's patients were often convinced of his cures and handed over their life savings for treatment. It's going to be a no from me. That's all I have to say about that. Another remnant of these old hospital days is a ghostly figure who calls herself Theodora. She is most often seen by housekeepers in room 419. She courteously introduces herself as a cancer patient before quickly vanishing. She sounds lovely. You don't have to leave. It's okay, Theodora, but you live your life. Oh, that's probably not a nice thing to say to a ghost. Anyway, let's move on. In the lobby of the hotel, a gentleman dressed in formal Victorian clothing, complete with a top hat, is often spotted, spotted at the bottom of the stairway or sitting at the bar. He's described as very distinguished looking with a mustache and a beard. And many people have claimed that they were able to entice him into having a conversation with them. However, for the most part, he just sits quietly. He never responds. And then he suddenly disappears. The hotel's crystal dining room is yet another place that is said to have very frequent paranormal activities. Here, other Victorian apparitions have been encountered many, many times. They People have seen groups of dancers from the 1890s in full dress whirling around the room in the wee hours of the morning, which is actually kind of beautiful, but also kind of haunting and creepy. I don't know. Other reports from this crystal dining room tell the tale of a 19th century gentleman who has been seen sitting at a table near the windows. If he is approached, he says, I saw the most beautiful woman here last night and I am waiting for her to return. I have so many questions, truly, and my heart is aching, and there are answers. There are no answers, but oh my gosh, this poor man just waiting for this beautiful woman. He's just trapped here waiting for her forever. That is so sad. Again in the dining room, a former waitress reported that she saw a vision of a Victorian bride and groom in the dining room's huge mirror. Allegedly, the groom made eye contact with her before the couple faded away. And also, in general, the Victorian spirits that linger, linger in this dining room are said to be very playful, which is nice for them. On one occasion, during Christmas time, the Christmas tree and all of the packages underneath it were found mysteriously moved to the other side of the room. Additionally, all of the chairs had been moved to circle or face the tree. I, I, I think that it... I have feelings about Christmas things being disturbed by paranormal activity. I don't think that's appropriate. So I think that the paranormal entities need to get the crap together. And that's how I feel about that. On another occasion, the staff arrived in the morning to find that the dining room was perfectly in order, except that all of the menus were scattered all over the room. And in the kitchen, an apparition of a small boy has been seen skipping around, and sometimes pots and pans are said to come flying off of the hooks. That's, like, so cliche. Like, every haunting you've ever heard of, like, it just came flying off the wall. I don't know. I haven't been there. I'm not trying to debunk any of this. I'm just saying it's cliche. Another often reported spirit is a young female who once attended the Crescent College and Conservatory for Young Women. According to the tale, this young girl either jumped from the balcony or was pushed from the balcony to her death. Today, guests report hearing her screams as she falls. Very sad. Other apparitions have also been cited in room 202 and room 424. 
And to top it all off, my friends, a ghostly waiter is allegedly seen throughout the hallways carrying a tray of butter. And I saved this one for last because I love a waiter dedicated to the transport of butter. And I just hope that he's okay. So there you have it, folks. A very brief history and a fun little peek at some of the hauntings at the Crescent Hotel in Eureka Springs, Arkansas. I must say that when I first stumbled upon this story, my very first reaction upon hearing that there's this haunted hotel is to low-key wonder why it's still in operation if it's so haunted. But then I remember that there are many, many macabre people out there just living their best lives, so it all tracks. Also, like, I'm not, I don't consider myself like a spooky girl TM, but like, I'm curious I can't, like, I love BuzzFeed Unsolved, okay? I'm here for all of that. So I can see myself wanting to visit this place. Would I want to stay there? Um, probably not. But I could, like, visit. I'd be okay with that. I would be okay with visiting. But anyway. So according to the hauntings that we were able to cover in this episode, um, most of the interactions and experiences had with ghostly things in this hotel seem to be harmless enough, which is nice. You know, I'm not here for hearing the screams of a college student or the stonemason or hands coming out of the mirror. Although I kind of get it. I kind of get that. But anyway, I, um, I like it that for the most part, these stories aren't malicious in any way. That's good to know. Anyway, my friends, um, there is actually, there is actually so much information about the Crescent Hotel. And I very much encourage you to do some further research if you'd like to. We weren't able to cover, like, everything in this episode. I mean, we never are, but definitely go look into it some more. It's a fascinating building with a very rich history, and it also happens to be kind of spooky, which is great. Um, anyway, um, I also just want to thank you guys, as always, for being here with me today for this very different kind of episode. I am genuinely so so excited for spooky season this year. I definitely plan on having at least one more spooky episode for all of you because this was so much fun. Let me know your thoughts. Let me know if you have any requests for another spooky episode. I'd love that. And as always, just thank you for being here and hanging out with me. I really love hanging out with you guys every week. Um, you can follow me on Instagram at notstrictlyhistory underscore podcast. You can send me a Gmail at notstrictlyhistory at gmail.com. You can also uh, support the podcast. Listener support is listed in the description box if you feel so inclined. I love you guys so much. Happy spooky season, and we'll see you next week on Not Strictly History. Mm-hmm.